And now, Father, as we come to your word, Lord, what a great source of strength and courage it is. Lord, we can feel so alone in this world and so different in this world. And so I pray that as we study your word today, that you would fill us, fill our hearts with faith in you, fill our hearts with a faith that is bold, fill our hearts with a faith that is courageous, that, that looks, in, looks to you and trusts in you in good times and in bad times. Teach us, Lord, to do what David does and to say what David says, that you are our refuge. Teach us to look to you in that way. And Lord, we pray that during this time, your word would instruct us, guide us, nourish us for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, or if you have the new Bible app, uh, please turn to Psalm 11. We'll be looking at Psalm 11 today. Uh, the first Sunday of each month, we are studying a psalm, uh, kind of as a way of keeping one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament, remembering that all Scripture is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, uh, including the Psalms, uh, including the Old Testament. We don't want to neglect any of God's Word, and so we try to keep one foot in the New Testament, one foot in the Old Testament. But we'll be looking at Psalm 11 today, titled, uh, in, in this Bible, uh, titled, The Lord, A Refuge and Defense. And this is really a psalm that brings out the human tendency to either fight or flight. The, the fight or flight instinct is really an instinct to react in order to survive. And I have no question that it is often necessary for our survival. When we feel like we're in danger, there's this inclination that we feel within us to either uh, go to battle or to run for the hills. Uh, the human body responds to a sense of immediate danger by releasing all kinds of hormones and adrenaline and activating the adrenal glands. And this is the result of a, of a physiological reaction uh, that increases our heart rate, increases our, our breathing and our, our blood pressure and all those things. But one of the more frustrating things that happens whenever a, a big storm, say a hurricane, hits a community is that there will be some who, even though they are instructed to flight, they're instructed to, to run for it, to evacuate. They don't. There was a recent interview in which a psychologist noted that in a hurricane, quote, there's a certain population that's never going to leave, end quote. And of course, that, that does include some people who can't leave. They, they would leave if they could, but they are maybe physically disabled or, or physically unable to do so for one reason or another. It's also possible that there will be some people who just don't, uh, don't, don't hear the warning, don't catch wind of, of what's coming at that area. But for some, for some, they have confidence that they'll be able to endure the storm. And so thus they choose to fight when they should have taken flight. And this often turns out to be an extremely, extremely foolish mistake. Now as Christians, we might not be facing a, a literal physical storm, a hurricane, but it is undeniable 
that there is a cultural storm that's brewing right now and it is heading right for us. Who can deny that the social and moral foundations of Western society, American culture, which seems so sure and steady just a generation ago, not even that, 15, 20 years ago, they're now crumbling away. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do as the foundations, the moral foundations of our culture crumble? Let me ask the question that David was apparently asked when the foundations were being shaken in his time. And that question, you'll see it in verse 3 here in Psalm 11. The question is this, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? One of the top countries that actually listens to our sermons week in and week out on the internet is Nigeria. How many of you are paying attention to what's been going on in Nigeria lately? Uh, our brothers and sisters there are being martyred, uh, slaughtered by the hundreds, if not thousands, over the past couple of years, put to death for their faith. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Last week we had some couples visit us for worship on the Lord's Day. And they actually started listening to our sermons while they were in China, uh, where the state is currently cracking down very hard on Christianity. They told me of how they would have to connect to an internet server that wasn't Chinese in order to download our sermons, because their government actually has our sermons blocked. You have Christians being beaten in China. You have Christians being interrogated as if they are war criminals in China. And you have the government sending spies into the meetings of the underground church there. In fact, just the other day, uh, Friday or Thursday, uh, in BBC there was an article with the headline, Christian Persecution at Near Genocide Levels. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And you know, it's so easy for us to close our eyes and plug our ears and think that this would never happen here, but this is happening here. Right here in our country, this is happening. It's, it's, it's not full scale yet, but it is happening. I mean, there was a pastor that I just learned about this past week who preached a sermon three and a half years ago in which he spoke out against the LGBT movement from the pulpit. Since then, he became an elected official in his city until, lo and behold, a political opponent dug through all of his sermons and found this one from three and a half years ago, pulled it up, and he was forced to resign from public office. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We live in a time when children are being massacred in the womb before they're even born, and people claim that murdering children is necessary for women's health care. We even had a president put a law into effect that forced Americans to support the murder of infants in the womb with tax dollars. States are now passing laws that allow a mother to murder her child after it's been born. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Christians who own private businesses have been taken to court sued for crazy amounts for failing or refusing to support an event that their conscience does not allow them to support. I mean, I guess you're, you're only allowed to act on your conscience if you agree with the majority. 
You're only allowed to act on your conscience if you reject a traditional ethic. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I mean, the list could go on and on and on. We could, we could talk about this for an hour, all the ways that things are indicating a storm coming toward us. But the point is that the cultural current has turned against traditional Christian values and views. What are we going to do in response? Do we fight? Do we flight? Do we bow the knee to Caesar? As much as these are normal responses, instinctive responses to fear or an imminent threat, the Word of God proposes at least one more option, and that is to have faith. Have faith. And that brings us to the psalm that we'll be looking at today. We'll be looking at uh, Psalm 11, verses 1 to 7. This psalm actually breaks down into three parts. First, we'll see the temptation that David faced in verses 1 to 3. Then we'll see his response to this temptation in verses 4 to 6. And then we'll see the result of his response in verse 7. But the the psalm starts out by showing us the temptation that David was confronted with. We read in verses 1 to 3. First, for the choir director, a psalm of David. That is part of the psalm. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So once again, this psalm, like so many, uh, starts by reminding us that this is a song from God's hymnal. Uh, This is meant to be sung, uh, and it has been sung by God's people for thousands and thousands of years, just like we sing it together today. But we're also told that it's another psalm written by David. He then proceeds to give us a declaration, just a statement. He says, "'In the Lord I take refuge.'" In the Lord I take refuge. Now, if you've read the stories of David, if you've read uh, the battles that he endured, the battles that the Lord was faithful to deliver him through, you know this about him. You know that the Lord is his refuge, and you know that that's what he believes. You know that he was described as a man after God's own heart. He sought and he trusted in the Lord, both when things were good, and he sought and he trusted in the Lord when things took a turn for the worse. Yes, he had some sin. Yes, it was heinous. It was vile. It was wretched. Yes, he did these, but he was nevertheless, overall, an example of what faith looks like. He was an example of what godliness should look like in our lives, because he saw that the Lord was his refuge, and people knew that about him. His countrymen knew that about him. His advisors, his counselors, they knew this about him. They knew that he took refuge in the Lord. And that's what makes the temptation that he faced so astounding to him, apparently. He says, how can you ask me this? The temptation he was, he was faced with was something like this. As he says, flee as a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's apparently what somebody said to him. And David is saying in response to that temptation, why would you even say that? Why would you even ask that when you know that the Lord himself is my refuge? 
So what was the situation that he was facing? What was the danger, the risk that he was confronted by? Um, we don't know. <laughs> what was happening that was so bad that someone, it was either a friend or an enemy, would tempt him to find refuge someplace else. Someplace else. See, this is either a piece of advice from a friend or it's the taunting of an enemy. We can see how it could fit either one. Run for your life is basically the advice, whether it's friendly or not. But what was the situation? I mean, there are some who think that it was when Saul was, uh, was, was pursuing David unto death uh, because Saul had every intention of murdering David because he knew that David was the king whom God had appointed for Israel. Uh, but there are some others who think that this may have been toward the end of David's life when he was running away from Absalom, uh, which we learned about back in the third Psalm, if you remember. But the, the problem is that neither one of these situations really fit with this psalm, uh, Psalm 11, because in this psalm, David is refusing to give in to the temptation to run for it, to head to the hills. In those other situations, David did run for his life. So it doesn't seem to be either of those situations. So we're just left with a broader, uh, a broader scenario where there was some kind of danger that David was facing. But here's what I would propose. I would suggest that David's temptation isn't necessarily just to physically run away. Rather, as one commentator notes, he says, quote, we're supposed to read this more broadly as a temptation to abandon the place God has appointed for us because of the onslaught of evil, end quote. So he, he's suggesting, and, and I agree, that we should read this as the temptation to not look to God in a time of trouble, regardless of what that trouble might be. And so I think we need to see this not so much as a temptation to, to run for cover as it is a temptation to neglect the difficult work to which God has called us. Do you believe, do you believe that God has appointed you as one of his children to be a light in the midst of moral darkness in our culture. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have a calling in your life to love and serve God and to be a light in the darkness? Do you believe that God has called you to participate in the Great Commission? Because if you're one of his disciples, he has. If you belong to him, if you've been redeemed by him, he has. And if you believe these things then you must also believe that Satan himself would do everything in his power to persuade you, to convince you, to back off, to ease up, to not take the calling and the commission of God so seriously. After all, God is going to love you anyway, even if you're not faithful. God's own enemy, Satan, would tempt us this way. So maliciously tactful, so persuasive and convincing is our enemy that he even persuades seemingly godly people to compromise, to compromise themselves right away from orthodoxy, to compromise in ways that they should not have. And so they end up giving an inch here, giving half an inch there, giving a foot here, and they end up being so far away from where they first started that their position is no longer where they started. It's no longer distinguishable from where their adversaries were. But they do it in baby steps. 
It just happens an inch at a time sometimes. And of course, there is a time to compromise. I'm not saying there's never a time to compromise. There is a time to compromise for the sake of preserving unity among the brethren. Scripture is clear on that. But the era of peace at all costs in the church, which has prevailed in much of the church for the last 60 years or so, has produced some absolutely catastrophic, absolutely disastrous results in the church in our day as mainline denominations have abandoned God's calling altogether. And as the social and moral foundations of our culture have deteriorated, Many other denominations, some big, some small, have also accepted the idea that we have to do whatever we can to get people to come into our churches. We have to do whatever we have to do in order to fill the seats in the pews. And so reverent worship has been replaced by relevant worship, which is worship that's aimed at giving churchgoers what they want instead of giving them what they need. So you see churches having bouncy houses and circus acts and professional wrestlers come in and talk about their careers instead of a sermon. Entertainment has been given a higher priority than edification and thus a lot of these other denominations that sought to repair the moral foundations of our culture instead exacerbated the problem by offering worldly means to draw worldly people. With the social justice movement promoting a heretical and false gospel called the social gospel, we're now seeing just how badly almost every single denomination has compromised and how far they've come from where they started in the name of peace among the brethren. The point is that the devil himself would persuade us that we must pursue peace at all costs as the highest virtue. But friends, we must not compromise. So let us pursue faithfulness to God at all costs. Let us pursue truth at all costs. Let us only pursue peace and unity insofar as it doesn't compromise our pursuit of faithfulness unto God and unto biblical truth. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? It's actually a really interesting question if you think about it. And it's an interesting question because most of us have probably asked ourselves that question. What am I supposed to do? While all this is is going on in the culture around me, while things that that weren't accepted, that that defy biblical standards, uh, are are now being embraced, what, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to draw the line? It's also an interesting question because it's tough to get a good answer for it, a biblical answer. But David in this psalm shows us the answer. If the question is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Maybe the best way to to approach this question is to flip it around. Uh, Flip it around and say, what can the righteous not do? Now, some would say that we should just run for the hills. There will come a point where we should just run for our lives, to to leave the cities and and live off the grid, as they'd say. That is, to become separatists. The problem with this is that our calling is to be in the world, but not of the world. I mean, if if we become separatists, who's going to bring the gospel to the lost? Who will be the light in the cultural darkness if Christians become separatists? We've been entrusted 
As God's children, we have been given and entrusted with the one message of reconciliation between man and God, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, imagine, if you will, for a moment, a doctor who goes to a land that is infested with a dangerous disease, a deadly disease, let's say malaria. And as he goes, he, you know, he brings the cure with him. Enough for everybody. But once he gets there, he decides that he'd rather live somewhere where the people who are dying won't be able to find him. That's essentially what this option boils down to. That's what separatism is. Only it's much worse than what the hypothetical doctor did because we're not just talking about the physical bodies of people. We're talking about the eternal destinies of souls. Others will see that living off the grid is not an option, but they'll decide to do essentially the same thing but without going anywhere. In other words, they'll isolate themselves so completely within their pagan community that they might be physically safe and they might be practicing their faith on a very individual, private level, but they can't or they don't function as a light in the darkness for the lost. Some will take a different strategy. Some will just try to blend in with the culture, blend in with the world, become a friend to the world, essentially becoming what I refer to as a Christian chameleon. In other words, they become outwardly indistinguishable from all the people around them. And before you know it, they look like the world around them. They talk like the world around them. They value the things that the, that the world around them values. They, they become indistinguishable from the world. Forgetting, apparently, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So to become a Christian chameleon is to not be a Christian at all. You, you might physically save yourself, but you're still not following your call. Following the calling that God has given you in the Great Commission to be a light in the darkness. So what do, what should the righteous do? Do they fight? Do they take matters into their own hands? Do they run for it? Do they, do they take flight? No. Neither. The righteous do not trust matters in their own hands, relying on their own understanding or on their own ability to sustain and defend themselves. And Charles Spurgeon noted that biblical faith, quote, knows not how to flee. James Montgomery Boyce noted this. He said, the one thing they must not do is flee to the mountains. The answer that David models for us is that the righteous keep on keeping on. The righteous keep being righteous. The answer that David models for us is that we look to God in faith. When the foundations of the culture at large are shaking, when they are crumbling, when they are deteriorating, when they are disappearing, we remember that we do not even stand upon that foundation. We just sang a song about what we stand on. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. You know how it goes. But don't just know it up here. Don't, don't just know it academically. Don't just know it with your, with your head. I'm urging you to live by that piece of advice, by that counsel, to stand on Christ and not on the foundations of the culture. Christ is the rock upon which we stand. So to trust in Christ and to stand on him completely is our response. 
to look to him and to run to him as your refuge in times of trouble, remembering that God is sovereign over life and death. And thus, regardless of how bad things might get in any given moment, Christ is reigning from heaven. And he's got it all under control. And this is exactly, exactly what David did and models for us, which brings us to the second section of the psalm. Let's look at verses 4 to 6. He says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So what's David doing here? He's showing us what he does. When he's faced with this temptation, he looks to the Lord. The temptation is off, or the, the, the attention is off of David at this point. He's showing us what, what his attention is set on. His attention is set on the Lord. When David says that the Lord is in his holy temple, we have to understand that David isn't referring to, uh, to the earthly temple. The temple, uh, the, the earthly temple that was built wasn't built until David's son and successor Solomon built it. So simply stated, there was no earthly temple during, uh, during this time when David wrote this. So what does that tell us? It tells us that David's mind is set on the throne upon which God sits in heaven. It tells us that God is in the same place today as he was when David wrote this. But what's the significance of a throne? Why does he use that kind of imagery? What's the significance of a throne? Well, we know that the person who sits on the throne is the one who's in charge. The one who's on the throne is the ruler, right? The one who rules. You're not there. I'm not there. The Lord himself is there on his throne. And we look to him. We turn our thoughts, we turn our minds, we turn our hearts to him. But the throne is also a place where judgments and decrees are issued. And that's, I believe, what David is looking to the throne of God for. He's not taking matters into his own hands to execute justice, even though he's the king of Israel and he could. He's looking to God for justice. And as he does, he makes note of at least three things that, he, that, he, that come to mind for him that he observes that we should also make note of. The first thing is that God is omniscient. The first thing that David makes note of is that God is omniscient. That means he, he sees it all. He knows it all. It means there's nothing in all of existence ever in any time or any place that escapes God's notice. He's omniscient. He doesn't learn. He knows the end from the beginning. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So there's no place for people to hide in their wickedness. There's no place that anyone can go to escape God's sight. And so those archers that we learned about, proverbial archers at least, back in verse 2, who have bent the bow, and they're aiming at the righteous, God sees them. In fact, he is sovereign over them. He sees them. They, they might think that they're able to do whatever they're going to do, attack or maim the righteous without being held accountable. But the truth is they will be. Because what they're planning to do hasn't escaped God's notice. 
They might not be afraid of God's judgment in the moment, but the day will come when they will wish that in that moment they had been too afraid to act. And I have to think that this is just a a major, major issue in the church in our day and age. And I confess that I too am susceptible. But in our time, with so many people on social media, there's a temptation to always be a social activist. How many of you guys have never seen social activism on social media? No hands, right? Uh, Yeah, a couple people who need to repent back there of lying, but... But yeah, we see it all the time. I mean, in fact, sometimes that's what our feeds, our, our, our social media feeds are filled with, is social activism. People are prone to seek justice right here, right now. And so you'll see people go on rants in which they're calling for justice immediately. And there are, don't get me wrong, there are certainly situations which warrant that, no doubt about that. But it's important for us to remember that the ultimate rendering of justice won't happen in this lifetime. The ultimate rendering of justice will not happen in this lifetime. Let me say it again. The ultimate rendering of justice will not happen in this lifetime. When somebody wrongs you, here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Remember that God is paying attention. When somebody sins against you, when somebody makes threats against you, when somebody plots against you, it has not escaped God's attention. Don't you think he's going to deal with that person, either now or later? Now, that doesn't mean that you don't call the police if somebody breaks into your home. And it doesn't mean that you don't defend yourself if your life is in danger. What I mean is that we shouldn't seek vengeance. We shouldn't seek revenge, because ultimate justice won't be rendered in this lifetime. Ultimate justice belongs to the Lord. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. He writes in verses 17 and 19, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And he says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's where that becomes difficult for us. Sometimes, it seems like God isn't doing anything. Sometimes, evil is prevailing, uprising, and it seems like God hasn't even noticed. He's not doing anything at least to establish justice or to execute justice that we can see. But we have to understand that it is his sovereign right to store up wrath and to execute justice and judgment when he knows it's best. All hearts, everyone's heart, is like an open book to him. Every desire, every ambition, every plot, every scheme, every action. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's omniscient. And that's the first thing that David makes note of. The second thing that he makes note of is seen in verse 5. David says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Does it surprise you to see that the Lord tests the righteous? He does. We are not exempt from his judgment. What we are exempt from is his condemnation. We're not exempt from his judgment. We're exempt from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. 
But there is an enormous difference between judgment and condemnation. The judgment that he places upon the righteous is not for their harm, it's for their good. He he doesn't test us to condemn us, he tests us to purify us. He doesn't hate his children, he loves his children, and out of his love he works to cleanse them of the impurities of sin in their lives. That is to say, he disciplines them. Charles Spurgeon notes this, he says, quote, None of the Lord's children may hope to escape from trial, nor indeed in our right minds would any of us desire to do so. For trial is the channel of many blessings. End quote. Man, that's that's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? That's that's not something that we would that we would think would be the best advice, the best thing for us. To say that we, we wouldn't turn away from a trial because it's the channel of many blessings. That's the wisdom of God. That is not natural man's wisdom. But if there's a disease that makes our lives absolutely miserable or or even threatens our, our, our livelihood, how insane would you have to be to refuse to get a quick temporary pinch from the needle administering the cure to you? I mean, sure, it might sting for a second, but then that disease will no longer have any power over you. It will no longer be a threat to your blessed comfort and well-being. And so it is with God's discipline. He tests us, not in condemnation, rather with the heart of a loving father. And sometimes it stings. Sometimes it hurts. But you, if you understand how depraved natural man is, you can't think that going from from a depraved, unregenerate sinner to being Christ-like is an easy process. It's just not. It's just not. If you're going to train for a marathon, that's going to, to hurt. You're, you're going to have soreness. You're going to have aching. You're, you're going to have to change the way you live. There are all kinds of costs to it. Even though you might be running the marathon for free, there's still a cost. But that brings us to the third thing that David notes. And that is that God... Uh, <clears throat> and that is that God is preparing glory for his people. He's preparing just judgments also against the wicked. While he's preparing his people for glory, he's preparing the wicked for judgment, for wrath, for the one who loves violence, in this case, pulling back their proverbial bows and preparing to attack the righteous. People, even legitimately saved and even very mature Christians, get really uncomfortable when we use the word hate in reference to God. You see what it says, though? It says, And the one who loves violence his soul hates. So I'm not the one that's saying that. That is God himself who has inspired this text, who has given us this text. I understand it kind of makes us squeam a little bit to think, oh, God also hates. I mean, we're much more comfortable talking about God's love, aren't we? But what we have to understand is that it's impossible to love without hating what threatens the safety and well-being and security of the object of our love. So if I love my wife, I hate whomever or whatever might threaten her safety or well-being. And this is how it is with God. His love for what is righteous is matched by his hatred for that which is unrighteous. His hatred for and wrath toward all sin. 
God would not be a righteous God if he did not hate sin, and thus God would not be God if he did not hate sin. And so we might be tempted to default to the position, well, okay, we'll just say that God uh, hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And while there is a degree of truth in that statement, the slogan really falls apart when we remember that God doesn't just pour out his righteousness simply on sin, but rather he justly pours out his wrath on sinners. In this case, David seems to be remembering how God poured out his holy and righteous wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 6, uh, that's, the, that's the imagery that he pulls up. He says, upon the wicked he will rain snares. Uh, by the way, that word snares can be translated coals of fire. Um, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. The idea is that God does execute justice. God does execute justice. His just judgments do come, although those just judgments are often delayed, at least by our own understanding. We might think in the here and now, God should do this, but he has the sovereign right to delay. They come in God's perfect timing, not in our flawed and fallible timing. But with that in mind, David may also be reminding us of something that is that should be of something of a comfort to us. And that is that sometimes God will be willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. God, before he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember that Abraham pleaded with him, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, Abraham said. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? And, and, of course, God agreed to, to spare the cities if, uh, if, if, if he can find 50 righteous within it. And we know that Abraham realizes, okay, there, there aren't 50 people there who are righteous. So he starts whittling down that number all the way down to 10, right? And the Lord promises him, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And, of course, there weren't 10 there. There was only one, and that is Lot. But the point is that God may be willing to postpone judgment against the wicked for the sake of preserving the righteous according to his purpose. Do the wicked ever have a purpose in God's plans? I mean, all you have to do is look at the Old Testament and see how God would use the the foreign nations to bring Israel into captivity. Why? For the sake of disciplining his people. God had a purpose for the wicked in refining the righteous. But the terrible truth is that the wicked know that their day of judgment is coming. The wicked know that they are under God's condemnation. God's wrath is made evident in nature. At the very least, it's made evident in their conscience. But instead of giving them a reason to put the brakes on their wickedness, what do they do? They floor it. They accelerate. They're like a driver who comes up to a railroad and and sees that there's a train coming full steam ahead, and instead of stopping, they try to speed up to beat the train. That is the foolishness of not yielding to God while there is still time. So rather than repenting, the response of natural man is to sin all the more, even though nature itself testifies both to God's goodness in giving them another day to live and in his terrible wrath to come. But friends, 
I'm convinced that our nation, that all of Western culture really, not just our nation, is currently under God's judgment. Beakey and Smalley note in, their, in the first volume of their Reformed Systematic Theology, they say, quote, God's providential abandoning of a society to degradation and self-destruction is a public revelation of his wrath. End quote. That's exactly what's going on right now. That's Romans 1. God hands the, re- the rebels over to their own sin. And he hands them again over to their own sin. He's not necessarily actively doing anything. All he's doing is stepping back and he's saying, I'm going to let your sin destroy you. Which is exactly what's going on in our country right now. But do you know what else is going on right now? Right now, this very second, God is on the throne. God is on the throne. And he's refining and purifying his church until he returns. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We respond in faith. We respond in confidence in our King, in our God. God has sovereignly ordained that we would be right here, right now, in this culture, at this time, to see what's going on and to be a light in this current cultural darkness for his purposes, and for his glory. So David has considered the the temptation. He's considered the wicked. He's looked to the Lord in faith, and now he looks to the future. He looks forward to the future, to the hope that we have. Let's look at verse 7. He says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. What a great hope. God is righteous, and God loves righteousness, and he demands righteousness. The problem is that if we're honest with ourselves, if we compare ourselves to what the Word of God says we should be doing and shouldn't be doing, the problem is none of us have even an ounce of righteousness of our own. If he simply left us to ourselves, to our own devices, to our own desires, to our own nature, he would see nothing in us but unrighteousness. But the good news of the gospel is that while our best attempts at righteousness can only condemn us, God left his throne. God himself left his throne in heaven, took on human flesh, and lived the righteous, perfectly sinless life that you and I were instructed to, required to, upholding all the demands and the requirements of the law. And this righteousness is imputed, that is, it's it's transferred to all who will believe in him. Of course, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only fulfilled the demands of righteousness that we failed to uphold, But then he also took the wrath of God in the place of everyone who has repented and put saving faith in him. Our sin was imputed to him, and his righteousness in exchange was imputed to us, so that when God the Father looked at Jesus, he saw us. He saw our sin upon Jesus. And now when he looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's the righteousness, friends, that God loves. That's the righteousness that God loves. That's the righteousness that 
he demands. That's the righteousness that pleases him. That's the righteousness that by faith covers us. And he died and rose again for our justification and to demonstrate his sovereign power in his victory over death. So why would we fear death now? That's the worst that could happen, right? The worst that could happen is death, which would actually bring us to our greatest blessing. And because of this wonderful transference of righteousness done entirely by grace through faith in Christ alone, we have a promise for the future. And that promise is this. It's a a hope. A hope that gives us every reason in the world to let our light shine in the darkness no matter what the cost. And that promise is this. That hope is this. We will see God's face. We will see God's face. John gives us this promise in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. God delights in righteousness. God delights in his children because they are clothed in his own righteousness. God delights in those who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ. And if it's that's you, and I, I pray that that would be you, then you must know that anything and everything, any affliction, any hardship, any trial, any adversity, any plots, any schemes against you, anything that you endure, any threat that you face in this life, it is nothing, it is absolutely nothing compared to the blessed joy that we will have in his presence in eternity. Nobody can take that away from us. Nobody. Because this is our hope, friends, as the world goes from bad to, to worse, to worse-er, as the social and the moral foundations of our culture crumble away, we don't need to despair. And we don't need to wonder what to do. We're to do the same thing that we've been doing. Looking to the Lord, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns and his kingdom cannot be shaken, his kingdom cannot be broken, his kingdom will not be overturned. His plans are unthwartable. God is always in control. So let us keep our eyes fixed on him, living our lives as a light in the darkness in light of this great, great hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it corrects our ways of thinking, for the ways that it rebukes our flesh because of the confidence that we can have in you as our refuge. We confess to you, Lord. We confess to you that our tendency would be to run for the hills or to separate ourselves or to not shine quite so brightly in the darkness. And we thank you for your grace in the times in which we have failed to be what you've called us to be. 
But we pray, Lord, that you would give us courage. We pray that you would give us wisdom, knowing how to shine in this culture, knowing how to bring the gospel to the culture. We pray for open doors in conversations with our neighbors that we may share the the gospel with them. But we thank you, God, for the reminder that you reign. That you're on the throne and you reign. And that there's nothing that even your vilest enemy could do to thwart your plans. Fill us with hope. Fill us with confidence as we remember how great you are. How awesome you are. And that you reign. That you are sovereign and in control. In order that Christ would be glorified in our lives, even as we face this cultural storm that's coming against us. May Christ be glorified by our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.